Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I'm humbled and honored to be here. And I recognize some of y'all and some of you I don't, but I till I leave Sunday night that I, I know all of you. I haven't lived here for 50 years. I was 16 when my parents and uh, my uncle and aunt Howard and Miriam Brubaker were asked to move to South Carolina to help uh, plant a church there. And um, I don't think I'm coming back to stay. I was in this area a few years ago for meetings and a lady come up to me after and she says, now that that your boys run the farm, I guess you'll move back. And I said, what? Um, I'm not saying I won't, but probably not. But it is a good place to be from. Just a small introduction. I have a wife. Her name is Grace. I found her in Red Lake, Ontario. And she is coming Friday. And so you'll get to meet her. We have four living children, a daughter in Mississippi, and three boys presently uh, on the farm. I work with them. And the one boy and his wife uh, is going to be leaving us. Brother Delmar and his company have uh, asked him to move back to Nicaragua. So I guess that's what's going to happen. And I'm happy for I have been in some of the churches that you all are from over the past years. And so if you ask anybody that preaches and travels, you have basic outlines that you change. And so I'm not going to tell you that you're not going to hear something that you forgot that you heard or that maybe sounds a little familiar. You may not, but there is that possibility. When I was a boy, we had two weeks of revival meetings. And then there was the Brunk revivals out there. I'm just totally turned around here. I don't know where I'm at. But out on the east side of Harrisonburg, where the one sale, cow sale barn is, um, George Brunk would set up his tent. And that lasted a long time. And it was hard on the children. At least we thought so. And so I want the children to want to come here. And so I'm going to have a little something for each evening for you to memorize or to listen to. And then you're going to come back the next night and tell it to me. Many years ago, there was a man from Oregon came here. His name was Marcus Lynn. He didn't come here, but he a <coughs> bank church perhaps. And he was a school teacher and a serious Bible teacher. And Marcus Lynn, I run into him three different times in his ministry. And he was always engaged and quite a teacher. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, and I think it's the gold standard. And I went to buy one for a friend not too long ago, and if you can find one on eBay, it's $75. And I don't know. The one I have is kind of tattered. That was Marcus Lynn. And he told us this story that 
when his father went to town one day to buy a suit coat, you know this little pocket here that's just totally worthless? And in that pocket was a card with a handwritten note in it that someone, either the tailor or someone who made it, or maybe hung it on the rack at the department store, put a little note in there and it went like this. What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end may be? And so a lot has changed. Um, Brother John and I remember when people would go to Turner Ashby and, and they'd go out there by the incinerator and the burner and smoke if you had a little card that your parents signed. And there was pressure on people, young people, to smoke. And so I want to ask anybody that's under 40, have you ever been tempted to smoke? Not one hand. Oh, one guy there, it's a little honest. You know, smoking is for losers now, you know, but back then you had the Marlboro Man and, and all the farm magazines had the, the picture of the guy smoking and on his horse and out in Colorado somewhere. And times change. There's other temptations that are probably more damaging than smoking. That's not my point, but I'm going to talk about that later this evening. But temptation changes. The devil meets us where we're at in society. And so, all of you under the 12 and under, say it with me. I'm going to say it, and you all, uh, I'm going to say it one more time, and then you all say it with me. What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end may be? All right. Y'all ready? Are you 12? 13? See, you get to say it. What good will it do to smoke and to chew, to swear and to drink, and never to think what the end may be? And so tomorrow night when I ask for someone to say that, I want you to stand up and say it. And if you don't, I'm going to ask one of your parents. <laughs> I recently visited a man that drills irrigation wells, deep irrigation wells, and he's 80 years old and he wasn't feeling good. And he told me that he's been treated for thyroid cancer. And there's a man that smoked a trainload of cigarettes. Cigar is always on his, on his lip. You see, he should have listened to that little proverb. It ruined his health. And now... He can't taste his food, and he has a lot of pain in his face, and he can hardly get his breath because of poor choices. Our choices do matter, young people. And so uh, we'll work on something each evening. The title of what I want to talk about this evening is Maintaining the Right Balance. There's balance in nature, there needs to be balance in your home, there needs to be balance in your church, maintaining the right balance. And so if you'll turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to read the first 12 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6, then I'll read a few verses from a few other chapters. Now these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments that the Lord your God committed to, commanded to teach you 
that you might do them in the land whether you go to possess it, that thou mayest fear the Lord thy God to keep all the statutes and his commandments. And when I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe it, that it may be well with thee, that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of the fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might, and thy heart. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children and shalt talk to them when thou settest at thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them as a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes and they shall write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be that when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells dig that thou diggest not, and vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, and when thou have eaten and art full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which has brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Let's go over to chapter 7, verse 6 through 9. For thou art holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are on the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor chose you because you were more in number than any people, or that ye were fewest, for you were the fewest of all the people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he has sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondman, and from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth the covenant and mercy with men that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And then I want to read chapter 8. Verse 10, and um, I'm going to read four verses, and then I'll skip a few, and then I'll read to the end of the chapter. When my children come to a grace in my home for Thanksgiving, before they can eat, they have to endure me reading this passage to them. I don't think they just endure it, but you know, the, the dressing might sag and the gravy might get a skin on it. But listen, I want to read this from the New International Version if you'll allow me to. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commandments, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, and when you build fine homes, 
and settle down and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. I was almost thinking these people were working for Anabaptist Financial. But um, then I got to that verse there. And it, uh, Lest your heart becomes proud and lifted up. Let's go down to verse 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. And then I could read the verse in the words of Jesus, beware of the deceitfulness of riches. It's not my subject tonight, but it fits right here. How that we become so comfortable with the good things that are around us in our country. And we think we deserve them. And they can turn our heart towards God. I'm no longer in charge of the major farming operation at home anymore. In the summertime, I have the privilege of working with a custom harvester that cuts silage, and I run one of the silage carts. And it's a good time. I got these young guys and these young married fellas, and I'm the old guy, and they bring me food, and, and I get to listen to their conversations about their girlfriends and, and who they wish their girlfriend was and those kind of things. And so I have a lot of time to think and as I'm working with these fellas cutting silage. Recently, I noticed something as I worked for those couple weeks in the month of July, that there was a lot of baby rabbits. And there was little quail and little wild turkeys hiding in the corn where we hadn't seen them, much of them, for m many years. When I was a boy, I used to raise wild game birds. I had quail and pheasants. And I still love to hear the clear whistle of the little rooster quail in the morning calling out, and he's so happy and to be alive. And the little hen quail, she's got a cute little call of her own, too. You know, quail are at the bottom of the food chain, and they often experience a very high mortality rate, up to 70 to 80 percent. And so they are prolific breeders, and the hen quail under optimum conditions, will often raise several broods a summer. And so up to pre-1980, there were, in my part, in the lower Virginia, I don't know about here, it's pretty progressive around here, not much bush left, but lower Virginia, the Carolinas, in the North Florida, huge quail populations were suddenly decimated. And so there was a lot of study gone into to find out what happened to the quail. And so at the Edisto Research and Education Center, which is our Clemson University experiment farm in our area, it would be similar to 
Virginia Tech. Um, the one of the doctors there said that when he first started working there, there was 20-some cubbies at the experiment station, and now there's no quail there. And um, <clears throat> But what happened? In 1978, the first coyotes were spotted in South Carolina. And in the 40 years since then, 45 years, all counties in South Carolina have coyotes now. And nowhere has it been more noticeable than in the wildlife community. It has totally upset the balance in forest and field. The rabbits and the quail and the turkey nests and the little fawns have been totally ravaged at places because something is out of balance. A few years ago, we called the local trapper and asked him to come and do his magic on our farm. And he didn't get them all, but he really sobered them up. And um, so this spring, I noticed fawns, the does had fawns by their sides, and there was little turkeys and quail all over because they were bringing back into balance something that had totally gotten out of balance, the predator and the food chain. Suddenly, my wife, Grace, became the old Mr. Gregor, McGregor in the tale of Peter Rabbit. She had to plant her okra four times. The tomatoes and the eggplant had the side eaten out of the fruit. And there was baby rabbits running out of the beans. And there was baby rabbits running out of the watermelon vines. And the big rabbits came out of hiding at night and grazed off her, her black-eyed peas. And they, they ate almost everything. And we tried hot sauce. And then we tried hot lead. And... They just seem to multiply like rabbits. How many of you have ever heard of the rabbit plagues of Australia? You have? Y'all realize that there was this man moved from England, Thomas Austin. He moved from England to Australia, and he loved to hunt rabbits. And so one day when the ship was coming from England, he told him to put four pairs, 24 pairs of rabbits. 12 rabbits, 20, 24 rabbits, 12 pairs on the, a crate on the ship, and they brought them to Australia. And in just a few years, things were totally out of balance. There was no natural predator there. And each female would have up to about 18 or 30 babies a year, and then when they're just a couple months old, they start having babies and it said, in less than 70 years, there was how many? 200 million rabbits. I don't know how they counted them. 200 million rabbits. And um, so they didn't know what to do. They couldn't eat that many rabbits, and there was no natural predators. And so they went over, they, and the, the rabbits started on the west side of 
Australia and they kept moving over and moving. They ate everything. They just ate it down because the native uh, herbs and veggies and sedges and grass was just there where they could eat them. They could hide in it and it was a, a kind of a warm climate and they could have litters all year round. And so they built the fence from the north coast to the south coast. The longest fence ever built, 1,138 miles. And don't you know, one day there was rabbits on this side too. And so they built another fence just parallel to it a little further east to see if they couldn't stop the rabbits. And that fence was only 724 miles long. Well, the rabbits dug under the fence and they'd go around the end while they were building it. And so they built a fence 160 miles long to try to cut them off in another corner, and it just didn't work. Eventually, they introduced a flea or a mosquito that carried a <coughs> milk soda, milk soda virus. And it came from South America, and they released this thing and it made the rabbits get sick and die. It was COVID for rabbits. And it worked pretty good. It killed about 90% of the rabbits. But the problem was the mosquitoes didn't go into the dry, arid parts of Australia. And so those rabbits never got sick. And then they built an immunity to it and they started to multiply again. In 1995, they imported um, another disease, in the native disease, into rabbits, and it's called uh, rabbit hemorrhaging disease, and I think maybe it's here. I'm not sure, where rabbits, again, get sick and die. And that was more useful, and it took out more rabbits than the other one did, other disease. But rabbits are still a major problem in Australia. They hunt, they shoot, they trap, and there's just way too many rabbits. Why? Something is out of balance. The predators that eat rabbits are not there. And so the rabbit population has totally blown out of proportion. Now I want to go back and talk a little bit about quail and make some comparisons to keeping balance in the Christian life. I went to a quail seminar one time. You have to go, those of you who are farmers, you know you got to go get accredited and have points to have your herbicide license and those kind of things. And at one of these seminars, the DNR was putting on a quail seminar, and I decided it sounded interesting, more interesting than a lot of the other things that they were going to tell us. And so I went for that, and, you know, I picked up some nice glossy brochures here about how to have more quails on your farm and what to do to get more quail. And I learned some things. One of the studies they did was why were the quail populations, did it collapse in the 1980s? They thought, well, part of it was this fence row to fence row, scorched earth policy of farming and uh, where there was no cover. And so what they did, they got college interns 
uh, students who were studying wildlife biology. And so they would get these college interns to start to live by the incubators. And when these eggs were getting ready to hatch and you could hear the little chick in there chipping, well, then the student would chip or whistle back. And then when the birds hatched and went under the brooders, the student would lay there and coo and call to the little birds and act like their mama. Within just a few days, they could go down through the benches here and those birds would follow them. And they thought they were their mom because they knew their voice. It's kind of like uh, Jesus and the shepherds. They would take them out in the field and watched them. They'd weigh them at the end of the day. They'd count how many things they ate and what they ate and different things. And then they'd fly spray planes over them and find out if that killed them. And then they'd list a lot of things. And at the end of their studies, they had some recommendations. A baby quail, if you've ever seen one that's just hatched, is about the size of a penny or a nickel, and it's all fluff but it can move pretty fast. And so <clears throat> there are things that are necessary for a mother quail to be successful at fledging her little cluster of chicks to adulthood, just like there's things that you and I need to do to be successful at fledging mature and stable children or to have mature and stable Christians within the church brotherhood. I want to make some comparisons. The first thing that little quail need is warmth. They need to stay warm. A little bird that's wet and soggy don't have enough energy to survive. They have to be dry and fluffy. And the other thing that comes with that is on cloud cool, um, cloud Cool, cloudy weeks or a day like today is really hard on the little birds. They just don't have enough insulation to go out and eat the protein that they need to grow feathers. Uh, much of a little baby quail's diet is not seeds. They don't need seeds. They don't need really good bird seed. They need protein. They need insects because they need to grow feathers. That is the most important thing a little quail needs to grow is feathers, not fat. Because when he can fly, then nobody can catch him. It's very important that he flies. And so he has to grow his flight feathers before he grows the feathers to stay warm with. And so the mama puts out her wings and keeps them warm at night. Just the same, small children need a warm spiritual an emotional environment to be able to flourish and grow into healthy, balanced adults. And so, yes, blankets are necessary when you're raising children. The further north you go, the more you need them. But the same for in the environment of the home. There needs to be peaceful, loving environment, void of anger and sharp criticism and retort. No child should ever have to go to bed at night with the slightest doubt that they are loved, wanted, needed, and belong in that parent's love, and that their parents' love for each other is all-enduring. It's devastating to children to not feel comfortable 
that mom and dad actually love each other and it's manifested or shown to them in their home in a daily way. A wet and soggy spring like today is hard on quail chicks. Just the same as a cold, wet blanket of criticism, fault-finding, and anger towards your children will cause a lot of suffering and a high spiritual casualty rate. I'd like to read a verse from chapter James, <clears throat> James 1. My dear brethren, or may I add fathers and mothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And also in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The second thing that little quail need is cover. And I told you that an adult quail's diet consists a lot of seeds and grain and things that adult birds need and can live on. But a quail chick must have entirely insects and worms to grow. The only way that that little chick will ever live long enough to survive the claws and teeth of all the hungry hawks, bobcats, coons, and coyotes is either to have safe places for them where the predators can't come in and get them, where they'll be able to scratch for their bugs and food under cover. And so they love to live in blackberry brambles or tall stemmy weeds such as ragweed, sunflowers, black-eyed Susans, where they can scurry around in the bottom, but the hawks and the other animals can't get down into them. The world is full of jackals and vultures that would be happy to find your little ones out scratching for bugs. We all need cover provided by a godly home and a spiritual sound disciplined church community is so helpful in every way. Scientists and wildlife biologists suggest that the lack of good cover and fence row to fence row tillage practices of the last 20 years has had a very negative effect on quail populations as much so as the coyotes. And so more recently, I think, most everything in this area you don't see as, as much tillage. It's no-till, strip-till. And that's been very helpful to have belts of vegetation where birds can hide from predators. You know, I read to you those verses in Deuteronomy. And it's the responsibility of godly parents to provide that cover for needed to protect the innocent children within your home and the impressionable lives that we all have, especially for small children. Help your children to make good choices, to maintain healthy friendships. Influence is huge. You need to teach your children to be polite and courteous and friendly to all. But closer friendships where we find our approval and fulfillment in our social lives should be chosen very carefully. I told you that Brother John and I went to Turner Ashby. 
We went to Turner Ashby. I don't know why you went. I guess that's just was where you went to school. There was a lot of pressure in my family. My mom's people were Eastern Mennonite college people. I guess it's EMU now. And they just assumed that we would go to Dayton and John Whalen, I think it was. And then you go into Park View to, to the Mennonite school. And my dad said no. And he sent us to Turner Ashby, where it was us and them. We knew. We went to school and came home and did chores. We didn't play football. We didn't go to the homecoming ball game. We didn't play in the band. Or we went to school and we came home. And I remember one father, we got on the school bus one morning and these boys asked us, he says, y'all going to the homecoming game? And he said, well, no, we, we never asked our dad. We ain't that stupid. Oh, well, we asked our dad and he says, it sounds like foolishness, but I guess. Well, I've had 50 years to look back. It was foolishness. It didn't pay out for those boys. Most of them are gone spiritually. There was a phase of temporary insanity in our community where all the teen boys had to go coon hunting. And coon hunting is probably a legit activity, but it's a pretty rough crowd, a really rough crowd. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, to be out with a bunch of guys dipping snuff and talking ugly. So much so that uh, I had a hired man that was, he's, he's my co-minister now, that I actually bought him a coon dog that he really wanted. So he would take my boys coon hunting and I could control the influence. Some of y'all remember the late Simeon Heatwall. Him and my dad got their heads together and they decided that, yes, it was okay for Stephen and Claire and me to go sucker dipping, but they wanted to control the environment. And so Stephen and Claire hooked the manure spreader to their tractor and they'd come pick up me and my equipment. And then we would go sucker dipping at Muddy Creek, but we didn't hang out with the riffraff. And he could tell us when we, when that tractor had to be home. And uh, so they were concerned about influence and they, did, they didn't have a problem with sucker dipping. Is that still a cool sport? Like it was 40 years ago, 50? Nobody goes sucking. You're missing out. That was one of the only fun things to do around here. I guess you got a gym now and you and you play sports for Jesus. And so anyway. My concern is be diligent, be engaged, be involved in your children's lives, especially during those young, impressionable years. 
You know, daycare may be a wonderful way for you to imprint other people's children for good. But as a general rule, it's not advisable or wise for you to leave your children in somebody else's daycare under the influence of those who do not share your faith and practice. Time exposed is influence. On the flip side of that, the patriarchal movement is not that great either. That approach is where daddy knows best, and daddy will baptize his children, he'll marry their children, and he'll teach them homeschool their children. And I'm not knocking homeschools, but you know, dad. And so it becomes very, very the experience becomes very narrow. And um, we do well to seek the support and help of others. And so we have church brotherhood. We have Christian schools and to help cover the needs of our broader family's needs. I got a phone call from a girl that lives on the West Coast. But I had her as a student, I think. And she was going through some difficult times in her life when she was 19 and she had a romance go sour and she called and wanted to talk to me. And I says, well, I'll, I'll talk to you, but I need to make a phone call first. And so I called her dad and I says, you know, you're this young lady's father and she has asked to talk to me I don't want to talk to her unless you want me to talk to her. And uh, he gave the famous quote of Hillary Clinton, it takes a village. And But what he meant was, you have my blessing to speak into my daughter's life. And I was so honored to know that he trusted me and that he knew that this was taking place. And um, I still enjoy visiting with both the father and the daughter when I see them. One of the best forms of cover for protecting your family is consistent family devotion on prayer time. Remember, influence is huge. I want to show you by illustration here my opinions and my belief on family devotions. I have a tea bag, and this represents the Word of God. And I'm going to put it inside the little teapot, which represents the parental influence, the mom and dad. You know, here's mom and dad, and here's the Word of God. And then we... The hot water are your children inside that protective place in the home, being exposed to the Bible day after day. And so in my teaching and preaching ministry, I've been all over the United States and Canada and some other places, and I get into a lot of homes. And it's a privilege. I, I, I learn a lot. But I've noticed something. There's very few homes have family devotions anymore. You see, we're not a generation of farmers where we got up and did the chores, came in and ate breakfast and had devotions, and then 
the children went to school and mom did the laundry and dad went out and worked on the farm. Mom and dad um, go different ways. And dad has to be at work. He has to leave early in the morning and the children maybe are still in bed. I realize that. But what are we going to do about it? Not have family devotions? I'm pleading with you. Family devotions are never convenient, morning or evening. In the evening, it may work until you have somebody going to youth and then forget it. And then when you've got a couple children in the youth, well, then they're going to youth and then they're going to sing here and then they're going to play volleyball here. And, and the more uh, progressive your community is, the more opportunities there are for you to never be home together in the evening. So you better plan on something in the morning if you want to have it. And so I have a friend uh, who, when his children got to be teenagers, he realized that it was never a convenient time. And so he sat his children and the wife down one evening. He says, how about we do this? I go to work at 6 o'clock, and our son, he goes to work uh, on the carpenter crew at 6 o'clock. And the girls, one of them was a school teacher, and I think some were still students at school, and the mother was a homemaker. What if we get up at 5 in the morning? And now you girls don't have to get dressed for the day, but you just have to show up modest and veiled. And we'll have devotions at 5 in the morning, and then we'll go our separate ways. And they agreed to try it, and it worked. And it was a blessing to them. This man did what he needed to do to put forth the effort to provide that cover and that protection that little quail and little children need to grow up in a good environment. We'll check this after, you know, it's, we're having family devotions now, right there. Once your children are youth, it gets very difficult to have it in the evening. I'm just telling you, you know that. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, a great while before day, he went out to a solitary place to pray. Psalm 5, 3 and 4, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up, for thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell within thee. Now these are pretty heavy pro-morning verses. I'm not telling you that. You find the time. Mothers and fathers, work together on this. Find the time that works for you. You know, God is not after great performance. God is just seeking worshipers. John 4.23. You know that story of um, the good Samaritan, I mean, um, the Samaritan woman at the well. Listen to this verse. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. You know, in all other religions, people are looking for a God to worship. But in the Christian faith, God is looking for me and you. Be there. Well, try to keep your family devotions from being boring. 
Ask your children questions. Read a more flowable translation if you care to. Read Bible stories, missionary stories. When our children got to be <clears throat> elementary, we started reading them, you know, the biographies of missionaries. And Grace, you'll have to ask her when she comes. She's got about 40 of them, and she loans them to the other little families now that our children are gone. Everybody from Nate Saint to, I don't know if there's any Anabaptist ones in there, but excellent stories. And them and our boys got to being old enough to be interested in uh, VS. We and they started going to Nicaragua. Two of them have been there, and and so we started reading all of Pablo Yoder's books. Read every one of them. About I've read them all anyway. Some are even about uh, Nicaragua. And I think it was a, a way to influence our children to be mission-minded. Yeah, we read the Bible, but we read a lot of stories. My wife is reading me now uh, the story of these uh, Haiti hostage things with CAM. And this morning she read me about them walking out of that place. And so... We just take time every morning. We read the Bible and we read a book. We've read all kinds of books. And I think that's okay. Spend some time singing. It doesn't have to sound like the angels or altar of praise. Um, maybe you're into the soggy bottom boys and southern gospels your taste. That's not mine, but. It's just your little family learning to worship a God who is seeking those who will worship Him. Years ago, um, I don't know the occasion. I think my sister got married and my wife and I went. We were living in northern Ontario at the time and we went to South Carolina to um, this wedding. And on the way home, we went to Harrisonburg, Virginia, because my mother's father, my grandpa, Malin Blosser, was terminally ill, and we, we wanted to stop by and see him one last time. And then we went to my grandfather, Ralph and Vera, heat walls for the night. And, of course, you know, those of you who remember her, she was, was stone deaf. And so she did the Bible reading in the morning. That way she could get something out of it. And then they would sing, and Grandmother was tone deaf. They, they say she used to be a beautiful singer, but she couldn't carry, she couldn't, she sang. And Grandfather was good at a lot of things, but he couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. But at least they tried. And then I remember Grandfather praying. And I have 66 first cousins. And he started to pray for this need and this need of the day. And then he started to pray for his grandchildren and those that may be kicking against the pricks. And I did a quick retrospect of all my cousins and uh, didn't think he was talking about me, but I wondered who he was talking about. But my grandfather was concerned about his grandchildren, those that may not be making good choices, who needed that protection of that mama quail, that church brotherhood, that good school. 
to make good choices. My dad was a zealot for family devotions. You know, there's always those days when the chores, is something went wrong, and you're just running a little behind, and we would have family devotions and miss the school bus. And if my dad was sitting right there by Brother John, I'd tell him, I, I think he, he, went a, he was a little carried away. I think we could have caught up the next morning. But I remember two times we missed the school bus because he was going to finish family devotions. And then we had the dairy tester, Glenwood Rubush. And he was not devout. I don't think he professed any faith. But he would come in after weighing the milk that morning and come in and eat breakfast with us. And he would sit out there at the kitchen table and listen as we went into the living room or, and had our family devotions. And I often wondered, what did that man think? And then there was the old order lady who came to help my mother when she had babies. And she too would sit out in the kitchen and wouldn't join us. But I know it spoke to her heart. We always, when we had our family, uh, great, we had our family devotions around the kitchen table and the door coming into the kitchen's got a window in it. And one day, I don't know if Grace or one of the boys was praying the, the family prayer, you know. I peeped. I don't know why I did, but I just felt I needed to have a look. And I looked, and there standing at the door was the Clemson Extension Dairy guy watching us, looking through the window. He was there watching us. And when he saw my eyes, it was just like he had a stroke. And just down him he was gone and he must have crawled on all fours out of there but I wonder what Marion hires when he went to work that morning what did he tell the people at work about this family that he saw he was Lutheran but what did he say about that family that he saw in the morning worshiping a God who was looking for us We kept a lady from Northern Ontario. She was um, evangelical free, devout lady, but she wasn't Anabaptist. In our home, she came for a wedding. <clears throat> and you know, you can feel a little on the spot or a little self-conscious when you've got guests at your house and you know, it's family devotion time. And, and um, well, we got a letter in the mail from that lady. And she says, I have never seen family devotions. I have never experienced them. But if I ever get married, that is one thing that I want for my family. Hey, bless my heart. In your prayers, learn to be specific in your family prayers. The children as they go to school, the missionaries you know, the needs of the day, the unsaved. Someone suggested that you keep a ledger. We asked, he answered. Um, we never did. But it's interesting to listen to children pray simple prayers of faith and watch them be answered. I need to move on. Uh, I was going to tell you a story. But, but I'm going to read you something now. Here is 
your family having family devotions. There, you're getting a little color there. You see? That's your children being influenced by the Word of God day after day. I want to have a reading here. Doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest. 3 John 5. Timid and modest Christians sometimes omit family devotions in the presence of distinguished visitors. And it is a sore trial for Christian mothers who maintain a family altar to lead the devotions before strangers. The following incident may stimulate some fainting heart to fidelity. Ten years ago, when an I was an unconverted man, I boarded in the family of a pious woman whose husband was not a Christian. There was a daughter of 19, another of 14, and a son of 10. Every morning after breakfast, I heard that humble woman gather her family in the kitchen, and she read with them a chapter of the Bible. And then, as I could not help listening, there was a peculiarity of service which mystified me. At last, I asked one day if I could remain. She hesitated. Her daughter blushed, but said I could do so if I really desired it. So I sat down with the rest of the family. They gave me a testament, and we all read. And then kneeling on the floor, that mother began her prayer and audibly for her dear ones there, her husband and herself, and then pausing a moment as if to gather her energies to wing her faith, uttered a tender, affectionate supplication for me. She closed, and her daughter began to pray. The poor girl, she was afraid of me. I was from college, and I was her teacher. But she tremulously asked for a blessing as usual. And then came the other daughter, and at last the son, the youngest of that circle who only repeated the Lord's Prayer and one little petition of his own. His amen was said, but no one arose. And I knew, I knew in an instant that they were waiting for me. And I, poor prayless I, I had no word to say. And it almost broke my heart. And I hurried from the room, desolate and guilty. A few weeks only passed as I asked their permission to come in once more. And then I prayed too, and I thanked my ever-patient Savior for the new hope in my heart, the song on my lips. And it was a great thing to remember that there is in the gospel, as in the law, provision made not only for thy son and thy daughter and thy maidservant and thy manservant, but also even for the stranger within the gates. Finally, the last thing that little quails need to grow is food. It takes lots and lots of high-protein food. And those of us and those of you who've raised a family of boys can identify. Someone has said that mealtime is when boys come to the table and continue to eat. Are we careful and consistent in providing spiritual food for those within our care? Grace and I have an acquaintance that seems to constantly obsess about the type of 
healthy foods that her children have access to. And, you know, it's got to be vegan or this or that, low this and high that. But that same mother will push a high chair over in front of the TNV when she finds them in the way or under her feet and seemingly has little or no concern about the nutrition of the food that those children are feeding their mind. Those children are in their 20s now. And one of them is vegan. The other one is really healthy too. But spiritually, it's been a disaster. It's very important that you know not only where your children are feeding, but who they're with and what they're actually feeding on. You know, I was in um, Sulokout, Ontario a few years ago, and there's a fish camp there where the tourists come to fish and they, the guides clean all their fish at the end of the day. And they dump them out on this big rock by the lake and there's probably 150 bald eagles come there and they feed on those carcasses. Why? They don't have to work to get them. And it makes them very fat and lazy. So much so that they've lost their ability to hunt. And so when the fishing season is over, they have to take food out to these eagles. It's like welfare they, uh, for eagles. They, they have to have food all the time because they got used to being fed. Well, you need to be careful what you're feeding your children. In a, more so in a spiritual way than if they eat a, a potato chip once in a while. There's probably been more change in the advances of science and medicine and travel and communication in the last 20 years than in the 100 years previous. And there's probably going to be more change in this next early part of the century. It's not over yet. Grace and I raised our family pre-internet for the most part. Uh, our oldest son and his girlfriend wrote letters. Our daughter and her boyfriend were a bit older when they started, and they mostly text and had phone conversations. Our third son and his wife text some and emailed, but he invested heavily in jet fuel. She lived in Nevada. And then there was Joel and Jody. He was in, uh, I think they were pretty much had a paperless relationship. And then our youngest son, Aaron and Andrea, through the wonders of the internet, could have audio and visual and be 3,000 miles apart. He had one date before he left, and he came home after two years, and they got married. He saved all that money. But no, I don't recommend that. But it's what worked for, I had this, very excruciating long-distance relationship, too. Is it wrong? No, but are, there are dangers in every way. There are challenges to good parenting. And in my childhood and in the 80s and 90s, there was dangers different than now, but there was nevertheless dangers. Parenting never has been for sissies or the faint of heart. Sin is now more convenient, more available, so private, and so raw. And so, yes, there's the internet, there's technologies, 
and our families have access to these things. And they're useful in many ways. But you know the story from the book of Esther chapter 4 when Mordecai told his niece, you need to go see the king. And she says, nah, I don't think I want to. He says, you know, God has brought you to this place in this time for such a time as this. And if you don't take care of it, God will raise up somebody else. Well, you don't want God to raise up somebody else instead of your children. You need to invest in your children. You know, there's been very difficult times in the history of God's people. And I can think of those families who raised their family in times of war just 150 years ago when the Civil War was here to be a parent and be have the soldiers going up and down the valley and burning your barn on fire. It was difficult. Times of persecution and extreme hardship. But your adversary tonight is much more sly and much more cunning. The enemy is not so clearly defined. And it's not that new sins have been invented. You know, you can read the book of Judges and it's just, whoa, raw. What has changed? I think, though, is the easy access to those sins and then it can be done privately. Practically speaking, the availability of the internet in our homes and on our phones hasn't brought a mass exodus of the faithful from our churches. Uh, sudden tra tragedies happen on occasion. They happened in the book of Judges. I'm not justifying it. But yes, the most of the negative effects of all this influence on our families is so very subtle, so sneaky. Those influences will blow us off course. And it doesn't require us to wander over into the bad part of the internet to be influenced. I would hope that the day never comes when we realize that a brother or sister who has embraced a strong faith has quietly shed key and basic principles of Christianity. Or maybe our youth have lost a sensitivity towards violence or a brotherhood has become acclimated to sinful lifestyles styles, and choices because of the influence of media in our homes. We need to be vigilant. Perhaps the day will come, and maybe is already here, when young children receive their Bible instruction from silly animated cartoon characters and not from their father. Failing to choose carefully and chart a time-tested course in a long voyage doesn't prevent your ship from leaving shore. But it is the danger of an uncertain destination. The helpful winds of brotherhood might help carry us to our intended harbor and destination. But we will probably be dashed against the rocks of remorse and disappointment because we allowed poor vision and certain influences of the internet and media to crop in, creep in and change us. First Peter 5.8, Be vigilant, be strong, be sober, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion or a sneaky coyote walking about whom he may devour. I think I'm going to quit.
I want to um, challenge you all to drive a stake, to do the things you need to do to protect your little children from the influences of a very wicked world. Just like that mama quail puts out her wings and lets those little birds come in when the, they see that shadow, that hawk coming. And that little rooster, he's up there on his lookout on a fence post looking where he can give that whistle. And it's not that mom and dad or the preacher or the deacon or whoever, the schoolmaster is trying to be controlling and hard-headed. They have a concern that there's a future generation living and growing for Jesus when he returns.